Charles III gives his first speech as king today in which he paid tribute to his mother, Queen Elizabeth, who died at the age of 96 in Scotland yesterday. The king vowed to serve with loyalty, respect and love. Our story is coming up on this Friday, September 9th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, we check in on democracies around the world that seem to be experiencing a period of instability. Citizens need to start thinking that democracy is not cheap in terms of their time and commitment and engagement. That voting every four years it may not be enough. Historically, black colleges and universities known as HBCUs are enjoying a resurgence of attention for their football programs. It's led to increased TV contracts and landing some star players. These stories and the forecast and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The first rendition of God Save the King was sung at St. Paul's Cathedral today during a ceremony honoring the life and legacy of Queen Elizabeth II, who died on Thursday. Other tributes are taking place across the United Kingdom today. Thousands of well-wishers have gathered in front of the gates of Buckingham Palace, leaving flowers, candles, and cards to pay their respects to the Queen. Earlier today, King Charles III honored his mother's life well-lived. In his first address to the nation as British monarch, he also renewed her promise of lifelong service. Her dedication and devotion as sovereign never wavered through times of change and progress through times of joy and celebration and through times of sadness and loss. The Queen will lie in state at Westminster Hall next week from Wednesday to Saturday. President Biden says he plans to attend the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. As NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports, the funeral hasn't been scheduled but will take place after a 10-day period of mourning. Biden says he does plan to attend the Queen's funeral. I don't know what the details are yet, but I will be going. And he added that he is not yet called King Charles. On Thursday, the president made a visit to the British Embassy in D.C. to sign a condolence book for the Queen. And in remarks that night, he said Queen Elizabeth was, quote, an incredibly gracious and decent woman. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. The U.S. imposed more sanctions today on Iran, targeting the Minister of Intelligence and his ministry. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports the Treasury Department accuses them of involvement in hostile cyber activities, including a July cyber attack on Albania. The new sanctions come two days after Albania severed diplomatic ties with Iran and ordered Iranian diplomats and staff to leave the country. A statement from the U.S. Treasury Department says Iran's Ministry of Intelligence and Security uses a number of cyber networks to engage in espionage and ransomware attacks. It says for at least the past 15 years, Iran has conducted, quote, malicious cyber operations targeting a range of government and private sector organizations around the world and across various critical infrastructure sectors. The ministry has previously been sanctioned for what Treasury calls supporting, quote, multiple terrorist groups. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Stocks are trading higher on Wall Street at this hour. The Dow was up 377 points. The Nasdaq up 250. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. People in Wilmington are being told to boil water from their taps because E. coli bacteria has been detected in the town's water system. Town officials want residents to boil water for at least one minute before they drink it, make ice, prepare food, brush teeth, or wash dishes. All ice, drinks, formula, and foods made with Wilmington tap water earlier this week should be thrown out. People are also being encouraged to use bottled water. The MBTA reports that two-thirds of the Orange Line work is now complete, with less than 10 days left in the month-long shutdown. T General Manager Steve Poftek says everything's going according to plan. We are confident uh, that we will be reopening on the morning, Monday the 19th. Today's update comes as lawmakers invite the Federal Transit Administration to testify about its investigation into ongoing safety issues at the T. The federal agency has more than 50 staffing and safety-related issues it says the MBTA needs to address. Preparations are being made for the state's official ceremony to mark the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks on Sunday. It's being organized by the Massachusetts 9-11 Fund. Karen Charles is chair of the fund's Family Advisory Committee. During the commemoration, she says she'll be remembering her husband, Kenneth Zellman, who was killed in the attacks. It's very meaningful and a fitting tribute to honor our loved ones. And our motto is to always remember. And we work really hard to continually always remember. The names of the 206 Massachusetts victims will be read at Sunday's ceremony. Boston Symphony Orchestra says if you're in the audience at Symphony Hall this coming season, you won't have to show proof you've had a COVID vaccine or show a negative test result. You won't have to wear a mask either, although the BSO strongly encourages you wear a KN95 or an N95 mask. Symphony says the air ventilation and filtration systems in the hall have been upgraded and meet or exceed standards. In the forecast pretty beautiful day out there right now. 77 degrees. Look for clear skies tonight. Should fall to about 63. Tomorrow and Sunday, really nice. Sunshine tomorrow, warming to 84. Partly sunny Sunday, rising to about 83 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. King Charles III addressed the United Kingdom for the first time today following the death of his mother, Queen Elizabeth, yesterday. Britain's new monarch praised his mother's life of service and said he would continue to emulate it on the throne. In our sorrow, let us remember and draw strength from the light of her example. And PR's Frank Langfitt was listening to his first speech as monarch in London. Hey, Frank. Hey, Yori. So his first address to the nation in a job that he's waited a very, very long time for. What else did he say? Yeah, well, it was a mix, Ari, I think, of praising his mother, but also beginning to make the case for his own reign. He talked about the Queen's kind of personal touch and her global appeal. This is what he said. The affection, admiration, and respect she inspired became the hallmark of her reign. She combined these qualities with warmth, humor, and an unerring ability always to see the best in people. Did he give any sense of how he might be similar to or different from his mother as a monarch? 
Well, he was really focusing Ari on this connection between himself and his mother's legacy of service, which is one of the pe- reasons people here were so fond of her. And it was also, as you re- you'd remember from your time here, it was a way that she kind of changed the monarchy from its image uh, as Britain was losing its empire and relevance over the years. And Charles also made a nod to the fact that you know, the United Kingdom is a much, much more diverse place than when his mother took the throne back in 1952. Whatever may be your background or beliefs, I shall endeavor to serve you with loyalty, respect, and love, as I have throughout my life. How'd it go over? Well, you know, I can't tell you because it's a big country and I don't know how many (laughs) people watched. But I decided to go to a pub nearby, and it was mostly people, early 30s professionals. And they watched, in part, I think, because the pub manager did put it on. And for them, they say it kind of fell flat. Um, They had great respect for the queen, but Charles, he's now 73 years old. They don't feel he really has her touch. And the family, with the exception of Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, the wife of Prince Harry, of course, they've gone to live in the States, the family remains entirely white. So it's not really as rep- not that representative of the way this country's been changing. And I was talking to a woman named Aisha Paw. She's an engineer of Indian descent. And, and this was her, this was the way she responded to it. We're a different age. We're a different gender, different skin color. Like, there, I don't really have anything in common with him. Uh, Frank, as you know, I covered the UK for years before you did, and all the way back then and before, there were these questions about Charles, whether he would resonate in a younger, more diverse Britain. That seems front and center right now. Yeah, it really is. And I think that people have been talking about since long before even you were here, both of us. And one of the things people talked about today in the pub as they were watching and listening is the words seemed kind of stilted. They seemed written from a different era. You just heard some of them in terms of the delivery. Del- delivery. And didn't really speak to the concerns of ordinary Britons. I was talking to a woman named Sophie Fisher. She's a management consultant from New Zealand. And this was this was her response. I feel like the Queen has been like a critical component of unifying the whole nation. I can't see someone like Charles modernising it. Everything he said was completely written by someone that has no idea about the country. And i got to say, Ari, through no fault of his own, King Charles comes to the throne here at a, at a really difficult time for Britain. There's soaring energy prices, uh, obviously a war in Europe. Just basically got rid of a very divisive prime minister, Boris Johnson, who was in many ways the antithesis of the queen. And the country that, you know, six years after the Brexit vote continues to kind of keep searching for its role in the world. Some rough reviews there. Did you find any love for the new king? There was, you know, absolutely. Uh, There was a lovely scene this morning in front of Buckingham Palace where he greeted people, he shook their hands, he read the cards from all the flowers that were piled up at the gates, and he came off as quite warm and genuine. And I think you will see he's going to be traveling this week, uh, basically around the country trying to generate support, unify the country around his reign. But the overall impression right now is that Charles will have a hard act to follow in his mother. And Pierre's Frank Langfitt in London. Thank you. Good to talk, Ari. Borrowers here in the U.S. may still be feeling a sense of relief with the cancellation of some or all of their federal student loans, but about 8 million of them could be in for a nasty surprise. They may have to pay tax on all that debt relief depending on what state they live in. NPR education correspondent Corey Turner has been looking into all of this and joins us now. Hey, Corey. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so what kind of tax are we talking about here and where exactly will borrowers be affected? 
We are talking about state income tax in as many as seven states, North Carolina, Indiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and California. And to give you a sense of the potential cost here, um, this is hypothetical, but for folks who get $10,000 in student loan relief, it could mean an extra three, four, five hundred $500 in taxes. And for borrowers who qualify for more relief, the higher end of relief, it could mean closer to $1,000 in taxes, ah. which could be quite a hardship for some Yeah. Folks. Okay, so borrowers might be on the hook for state income tax, but not federal, right? Right. The federal government used to tax student debt relief, but last year Congress changed that. Through 2025, student debt relief is exempt from federal income tax. The challenge, though, Elsa, while most states base their income tax on federal rules, they don't have to. So in North Carolina and Indiana, for example, state leaders simply decided they want to keep taxing canceled student loans. The Other states on this list are a bit messier, though. They either don't follow federal tax policy or are really out of date and just don't have this tax exemption on their books yet. Okay, well, how likely is it that some of these states are going to scramble to change this? I think it's really likely, especially in a place like California. Uh, The leaders of the state legislature there tweeted uh, earlier today, quote, rest assured one way or another, California will not tax federal student debt relief. But to be clear, the t- the clock is ticking um, since states need to figure all of this out before people start filing their taxes. And, you know, in many states, legislatures, they're not going to be back in session until early next year. Um, Arkansas is a great example. The state's tax agency was really emphatic with me, um, just making clear just because current policy in Arkansas suggests debt relief is taxable doesn't mean it will be taxed, but they're really in a kind of limbo until the state legislature comes back in January and officially decides what do they want to do? You know, we could see something similar play out in many of the states on this list. Yeah. Okay, well, in states that do decide to tax student debt relief, what do borrowers need to know right now? Yeah, and this this is where um, this really kind of maddeningly confusing story gets maybe the most confusing. Uh, in the before times, when borrowers did have to pay federal income tax, they were sent this form, okay? It was called a 1099-C. <laughs> and not only did borrowers get it, but state tax authorities also got it. So basically everybody knew who had gotten debt relief and who was on the hook for income tax. But this time, because there won't be any federal income tax, the U.S. government isn't sending out these 1099-C forms, not to borrowers and not to state tax authorities. So I've been asking states, you know, without getting this federal form, how will you know who owes state income tax on their student debt relief? And the answer appears to be they likely won't know. And that really puts the burden on borrowers to know they're on the hook for this state income tax and to proactively pay it. But uh, to end on this, uh, Elsa, I talked to several tax experts who really warned me that lots of borrowers may not end up paying, not because they're trying to commit tax fraud, but because without that 1099-C form, they simply may not know they need to do it. That is NPR's Corey Turner. Thank you, Corey. You're welcome, Elsa. Thank you. 
you might want to make sure Alexa is out of earshot for this next story. You can say basically anything to a smart speaker. You can tell it to set an alarm. Alarm set for 8.30 a.m. tomorrow. You can ask it what the weather will be. And can expect a high of 77 degrees Fahrenheit. You can make it play music or turn on the lights or order groceries. Or you can even ask it something, you know, really, really silly. Alexa, play poop. That is BuzzFeed reporter Katie Natopoulos. Her five-year-old son recently discovered that if you tell the smart speaker to play poopy diaper, it will do just that. I got a poopy diaper, poopy diaper. I, I mean, I laughed hysterically. That song is called Poopy Diaper. It's really, like, serious musically. Natopolis found that there are actually a whole bunch of musicians making poop-themed songs. No way! <laughs> and although there's no way to prove it, she's pretty sure she knows who their most avid listeners are. Children yelling potty words at smart speakers. Everyone loves poop, whether they admit it or not. Luckily, young people are young enough to not be ashamed to admit it. Well, Matt Farley is one of those musicians who loves poop. He learned that making songs with nonsensical lyrics about bodily functions was a recipe for success. The more ridiculous the song, the more streams. The poop song was literally me on the piano singing the word poop for a minute and a half. Oh, poop, 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 poop. Topolis says musicians making poop songs got a big boost in streams once more people started buying Amazon's Alexa smart speaker. 90% of their plays was coming from Amazon Music. That's the clear link that this is being driven by Alexa rather than someone going into Spotify and typing in the words poop. Musician Matt Farley says in at least one case, families even want to hear poop songs live. Like one couple who brought their three-year-old son to a recent show. Specifically because he's a fan of my song Poop Into a Wormhole. Everyone's having a grand old time singing poop, poop, poop into a wormhole. If you want to find more of Matt Farley's music, just ask Alexa. Hey Alexa, turn it up. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Wall Street ends the first full week in September with an upswing. The Dow rose about one and two tenths percent, 377 points, to close at 32,152. S&P gained about one and a half percent to finish at 4,067. The Nasdaq picked up a little over 2% to close at 12,112. Coming up on All Things Considered, many ancient artifacts are leaving the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and heading back to their home countries. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. And CB Team in Lexington, helping all ages overcome anxiety and OCD with a mix of science and compassion. CBTeam.org. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. 
We've got bright but milky skies today, giving way to a clear night tonight, lows about 63. Weekend's looking pretty wonderful. Tomorrow, sunshine moving up to the mid-80s. Should stay around the mid-80s on Sunday with sunshine and some fair weather clouds around. Clouds but mild temperatures early next week. Should be mild enough tonight to take a good look upward. We'll have a full harvest moon tonight. What's more, the moon will rise between two planets bright enough to see. The shiniest is Jupiter, low on the southeast horizon. Higher up is a gold-toned Saturn. 77 degrees now in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from DuckDuckGo, a privacy company committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer private search and tracker blocking with one download. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. More than 70 stolen artifacts, some more than 2,000 years old, returned home to Italy and Egypt this week. They include a mummy portrait, a marble head depicting the goddess Athena, and an intricately painted drinking cup. The Manhattan District Attorney sees these objects as part of a string of search warrants targeting private collectors and New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. Erin Thompson has been tracking these investigations. She's a professor of art crime at the City University of New York and joins us now. Welcome. Lovely to be here. Lovely to have you. Okay, so let me just ask you, some of these objects, I mean, they were purchased decades ago. So what took so long to determine that they were stolen? Well, it didn't take so long to determine it. they were stolen. It took a while for the Metropolitan Museum to admit that, I think. Ah. Uh, a few decades ago, Italian authorities busted a, an antiquity smuggler who had a huge smuggling ring. And the thing is, he kept really good records, which is not such a great idea if you're a <laughs> worldwide criminal. Right. And including photographs of all of the antiquities that had passed through his hands that had been dug up from tombs, smuggled out of Italy, and then ended up in the hands of private collectors and museums around the world. So there are so many of these antiquities, it's taken a while for Italian authorities to match the photographs to objects in museums. And that is what happened here. Well, In the Met's defense, um, a museum spokesperson told us in a statement that the Metropolitan Museum of Art has been fully supportive of the Manhattan DA's investigations. Is it your view that the Met should have done more? No, I think the Met was fully cooperative, although I'm not sure how much you can pat yourself on the back for doing something you're legally obligated to do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But what I think needs to happen is the right now the the museums are just waiting for the authorities to approach them and say there's a problem with this particular item. But the museums have all of this information about items in their collection. Why aren't they the ones digging into that information and saying, oh, there's other red flags that Mm. should be attended to. We're not just going to wait for authorities. Well, what would the incentive be for them to do that? I mean, if prosecutors had never gotten involved in these specific cases, is there any real incentive for museums to independently investigate the patronage of objects that are currently in their collection? Sadly, no. And that's why I think public attention is so important. Right now, museums get to have this good reputation as some 
place that's preserving art without any question. And it's only when we as the public ask, hey, how exactly did you get those things that they start to think, oh, we better reconsider our ethics? Well, not to justify theft, but, you know, we have heard arguments from museums in the past that even if certain objects were stolen in their collections, museums could at least preserve those objects for public appreciation and academic study. What do you say to that argument? I have two small kids, and when my youngest steals a cookie from her older brother and runs around the house as he's chasing her, shouting, I sharing, I sharing. <laughs> That argument doesn't fly. Uh -huh. uh, it's good to share heritage, but you can't justify violent theft by saying, well, now I'm sharing. It's great to share if everybody agrees. And I hope that's what we'll see in museums in the future. But to go a step further, how would you ethically source a collection? One that still manages to educate and enrich the public's cultural understanding. Well, say you wanted to go to a museum to learn about the culture of Nepal. Right now, most Western collections have sacred artworks that were stolen from active worship in shrines and monasteries in Nepal. That seems kind of unethical, creepy, not great. What if instead those galleries were filled with contemporary art, uh, art made by people who are continuing these traditions of sculpture and wood carving, uh, videos of historical artwork installed in shrines. So it looks like more contemporary art. It looks like more negotiations. Uh, it doesn't look like buying something from an auction or a dealer with absolutely no idea of how it got out of its country of origin. Aaron Thompson, professor of art crime at the City University of New York. Thank you very much. Thank you. Canada's official opposition, the Conservative Party, will announce the results of elections for a new party leader tomorrow. And the heavily favored candidate is a member of parliament who has drawn comparisons to former U.S. President Donald Trump. Emma Jacobs reports from Montreal. Earlier this summer, parliamentarian Pierre Polyev walked the streets of Ottawa at the head of a flag-waving procession. Beside him was James Topp, an army reservist walking cross-country to protest COVID-19 restrictions and vaccine mandates. I think that he is uh, advocating freedom of choice. People should have the freedom to make their own decisions uh, with their own bodies. And now, Polyev appears poised to become the head of Canada's Conservative Party, the main opponent to the Liberal Party led by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The election of the Conservatives' new leader, conducted by mail-in ballot, conclude Saturday. Aliyev would replace former leader Aaron O'Toole, who tried to keep his party to the political center. Yes, liberty for humanity. O'Toole stepped down in February during demonstrations in Ottawa, which supporters called the Freedom Convoy and opponents called an occupation of the nation's capital. Polyev announced his own candidacy days later, saying he would fight to make Canadians, quote, the freest people on earth. Now, the people with power, the media, interest groups, corporate giants, government authorities, will fight tooth and nail to keep on top. So it won't be easy. Polyev has become known for his use of social media to communicate his populist message directly with voters. Pierre Polyev is a, is a conservative ideologue. 
Conservative strategist Melanie Paradis says while Polyev often gets compared to former President Donald Trump, she thinks that's overblown. Someone like Trump is more of a demagogue, and he's turned the GOP into a cult of personality, and that is not what's happening in Canada right now. But she says, like Trump, Polyev has managed to engage people frustrated with the current government who may not have voted in the past. The first time they've ever been to a political rally in their lives was to go see Pierre Polyev. And some observers, including pollster and analyst Shachi Curl of the Angus Reid Institute, think he could have a path to becoming prime minister in a future election. Polyev actually doesn't need to go mainstream. He can hold the entirety of his conservative base as it exists today. And if he can pick up people even further to the right, and if they show up to vote for him, there is a path where he picks up a majority government. For now, Curl says Polyev's likely victory in this leadership race would still signal a big change and rightward shift for Canada's Conservative Party. For NPR News, I'm Emma Jacobs in Montreal. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox and Orioles start up a weekend series in Baltimore tonight. Pitching duties go to Brian Bayo for the Sox, Austin Voth for the Orioles. Xander Bogarts will be back in the lineup after he was out with a back injury on Wednesday. Another beautiful day today, a clear night tonight. Good for viewing the full harvest moon tonight. Pretty comfortable, about 63 degrees. Tomorrow and Sunday, sunshine. Look for temperatures warming to 84 degrees. Partly sunny skies on Sunday, rising to 83. If you're planning a dip in the ocean this weekend, know that the National Weather Service has issued a rip current warning. Hurricane Earl is creating the dangerous conditions around Bermuda. Earl is expected to stay out to sea, but rip currents will be especially harsh in New Hampshire and Maine. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tufts Medicine. It's not just medicine, it's Tufts Medicine. And Cityside Subaru in Belmont with the all-new 2022 Subaru Outback Wilderness Edition. It's summer of love at citysidesubaru.com. Jay Powell is not going to back down till inflation waves the white flag. We will talk about the Fed chair, inflation, the measurement coming up next week, and all kinds of good stuff about this economic week that was next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. For the first time, King Charles III addressed the nation as monarch from Buckingham Palace following the death yesterday of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, at age 96. Charles called the late queen his darling mama and spoke of her warmth, humor, and unwavering ability to always see the best in people. He also pledged to renew her lifelong promise of service to the country. As the queen herself did with such unswerving devotion, I too now 
solemnly pledge myself throughout the remaining time God grants me to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of our nation. His speech was broadcast on television and streamed as about 2,000 people attended a service of remembrance for the Queen at St. Paul's Cathedral. As the UK begins 10 days of mourning, tributes are pouring in from around the world. NPR's Julie McCarthy has more. Mourners across the globe are reflecting on the Queen's life of duty. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern described the Queen's death as the end of a chapter in history. Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister said she was fondly known as Mama Queen. Fiji's leader said she was a comfort and inspiration to our people even a half a world away. Until her death, the Queen presided over the Commonwealth, a group of 56 countries that were once part of the British Empire, including 21 African and 11 Pacific nations. The Queen visited these countries often multiple times, a mark of her global reach. Flags in Australia, New Zealand, and the Solomon Islands are flying at half-staff in honor of her passing. Julie McCarthy, NPR News. Stocks finished higher to end the week on Wall Street. The Dow gained 377 points, up more than 1%. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. An independent investigation into allegations of sexual misconduct by some faculty at the College of the Holy Cross concludes the school lacks official policies and procedures to address professional conduct. The probe was launched following student allegations against a former organist and a former professor at the Worcester College. Investigators are offering recommendations to improve culture, restore trust, and ensure accountability. Holy Cross administrators say they will move quickly to implement changes. The National Weather Service says smoke from the western wildfires has drifted into our area. Meteorologist Alan Dunham says the sky is going to look hazy from now until Sunday morning. Could be the potential for some a uh, nice reddish sky at the time of sunset, and if the smoke's still around, sunrise Saturday morning. This is well up in the atmosphere, so, you know, you're not going to smell any smoke or anything. It's because it's all well up in the atmosphere. The National Weather Service says the smoke is not a public health threat. The Weather Service is warning swimmers and boaters about dangerous rip currents, but for surface such as Mac Kipe of Situate, he welcomes the impact from Hurricane Earl, especially with the start of the unofficial surf season this weekend. You know, we were hoping it was going to start early this year. It didn't happen, but it's pretty active out there now. Earl is going to give us waves. It's not going to be unbelievable, but it'll be rideable, fingers crossed, because we're way overdue. We had a really flat summer. Rough seas are causing problems for people trying to catch a ferry between Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard. This afternoon, the Steamship Authority is changing the routes on some of its trips. A court officer is facing charges of assault and battery in connection with an attack in the North End. Anthony Ferracano is accused of punching a man before he pushed him down a flight of stairs last month. Ferracano works at the Charlestown Division of the Boston Municipal Court. At his arraignment today, he was ordered to stay away from the victim, surrender all firearms, and enroll in anger management training. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu today appointed a new director to oversee a city program that helps people transition to a new life after they've been incarcerated. David Mayo will oversee the Office of Returning Citizens. It was created five years ago to help those released find a home, job, and health care. It also provides mentors to help guide them. Mayo is with the Suffolk County Sheriff's Office, where he oversaw similar support programs. 
Red Sox try to shake off, having been swept by Tampa Bay as they take the field in Baltimore tonight. Brian Bayo pitches for Boston. And we've got more nice weather ahead tonight. Clear, not quite as cool as last night was in the mid-60s overnight. Tomorrow, summery weather, sunshine, milder temperatures in the mid-80s for a high. A few clouds move in for Sunday, but we should still see a good deal of sunshine back up in the 80s. This is 90.9 WBUR. 77 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. When Liz Truss took power this week in London, she became the United Kingdom's fourth prime minister in six years. In Israel, voters are about to hold their fifth election in less than four years. And of course, here in the U.S., many Americans still refuse to accept the results of the last presidential election two years ago. All over the world, democracy seems to be experiencing indigestion. Moazes Naim is a distinguished fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and he's written extensively about the state of democracy around the world. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hi, Ari. Thanks for inviting me. Obviously, there are unique circumstances in each of these countries, but is there also a common thread running through them? Are the world's leading democracies more unstable than they used to be? Yes, democracies are embattled both by internal factors and external shocks. Uh, people are disappointed on the, the performance of democracies. Democracies are having a very hard time fulfilling the dreams, expectations, needs of the population. And then they have to cope with external shocks that change things dramatically, uh, what we're seeing with inflation, for example, or, of course, climate change, uh, terrorism. All, these are all problems. So, in general, what we're seeing is a general disappointment with the performance of democracies. I gave the examples of the U.S., the U.K., and Israel. Are there other prominent Western democracies or just democracies in general you would mention where things seem to be way more of an upheaval right now? Yes, Italy is going to have an election uh, very soon, and uh, a candidate that uh, has its origins in the fascist movement is likely to win. Uh, Brazil, uh, the president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, has said, uh, you know, he's questioning the system, and he probably wouldn't uh, leave the government Hmm. if he loses the election. So throughout the world, you are seeing all kinds of uh, uncertainties about the stability and longevity of democracies. In many of these countries, we see larger-than-life figureheads at the center of the drama. Boris Johnson in the UK, Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel, Donald Trump in the US. Is there a connection between that kind of reality TV-style leader and political instability in a democracy? They all are victims of the expectations they cannot fulfill by the traditional methods. So they try to, you know, they become populists in terms of uh, stoking divisions that the country has and trying to, you know, divide and conquer becomes a requirement to survive in politics. Then polarization, you know, fueling pluralization and the wedges and amplifying and multiplying the wedges that fragment society. And all of these, of course, amplified by social media and the consequences it's having on our political behavior. What does this mean for citizens of these countries? 
Well, citizens need to start thinking that democracy is not cheap uh, in terms of their time and commitment and engagement. That going to, you know, the voting every four years uh, it may not be enough. They need to strengthen their ability to detect charlatans and, and lies and populist behaviors. Citizens need to, to be more citizens and just less uh, dwellers of a country. You know, I was in Glasgow last year for the UN Climate Summit, and I remember a clean energy researcher saying to me, democracies are so unpredictable these days that to solve big long-term problems like climate change, autocrats like Xi Jinping in China might be more reliable partners because they can set a path, choose a policy, and stick with it, while the U.S. might do a 180 every time a new party takes power. So do you think that the instability in democracies that we're seeing right now makes it harder for those countries to exercise global leadership on some of the biggest challenges facing the world today? Yes and no, because I also uh, am seeing uh, great political weaknesses in autocracies. Hmm. The, the thing here that needs to be reminded is that uh, more and more it's clear that we have global problems, you know, the pandemic, climate change, uh, inf global inflation. None of these problems will be solved by any country uh, acting alone, even a superpower. You need countries to work together. And if that doesn't happen, it becomes very difficult. And then it feeds into the perceptions of uh, underperformance and, and disappointment that people have uh, against the governments. That's Moises Naim. His latest book is The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics for the 21st Century. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ari. Of all the college football games on tap tomorrow, one matchup will be historic. For the first time, Louisiana State is taking on Southern University and HBCU. It's part of a growing trend that's putting a larger spotlight on football teams from historically black colleges and universities. Cody Short of member station WBHM has the story. At the Black College Football Hall of Fame Classic in Ohio a few days ago, it was festive. Winston-Salem State was taking on Central State. Latoya Turner graduated from Central State in 2009 and traveled four hours for the game. HBCU's been around since the 1800s, and they're not just something that's like popping right now, but they, they've been popping. It's just now getting exposure. That exposure has blossomed in the past few years. Football at HBCUs has always been a cultural cornerstone. Since the legendary former NFL cornerback Deion Sanders took over as head coach at Mississippi's Jackson State University in 2020, he ushered in a new wave of recognition for HBCU football. Welcome back into the Sheraton, Birmingham for the 2022 SWAC Media Day presented by Pepsi. The Southwestern Athletic Conference, or SWAC, had their media day in July. A dozen HBCUs brought their head coaches and top athletes to discuss the upcoming season. Travis Hunter was a star of the show. Not, a, not enough of our black brothers go to HBCU. They all think they just have to go to the PWI to get the exposure they need. So I wanted to know that they accepted in the HBCU too. Hunter shocked sports fans when he decided to attend Jackson State University rather than go to a PWI or predominantly white institution. It is very rare for an HBCU to land the top athlete. And Hunter was the number one overall high school recruit who had already committed to Florida State University. Sports Illustrated called the move probably the most shocking decision in the history of college football recruiting. HBCUs usually don't offer the same resources, but Deion Sanders is shaking that up. I love where we are uh, with our program, Amen. and I'm trying to 
inflame other programs as well simultaneously. So when, up on the, when I'm up on the stage talking, I'm not just talking for Jackson State. I'm talking for the whole HBCU and the whole SWAC and whole black college football in general. Sanders is capitalizing on his notoriety to change the game. He wants HBCUs to focus on generating more money for their schools, and that's something Abreon Scott agrees with. Scott runs the YouTube channel Offscript TV, and he's dedicated to HBCU sports, but he wants to see more benefits for the schools themselves. As black people, what you see is that we are the culture, but we never capitalize on our own culture. Recently, SWAC signed a media deal rumored to be $120 million over 10 years. This would bring in more money and broadcast more games to more households than ever before. But it's tiny compared to the Big Ten Conference's new seven-year agreement worth billions. It's bad business, and you're, and you're not setting up yourself with media contracts that recoup some of these schools' monies that they put out for the games. Perhaps the biggest change could come as more highly ranked universities play SWAC schools in the future. It's something Louisiana State University is willing to do. This weekend will be the first time the Tigers play an HBCU in school history, but it won't be the last. LSU will take on Grambling State University next year. For NPR News, I'm Cody Short. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Pension, manage, pension fund managers are dipping their toes into crypto, and government regulators are saying be careful. That concern over whether retirement funds should get mixed up with new kinds of investments is an old one. Waylon Wong and Darian Woods from Planet Money's The Indicator explain. The 1960s were a boom time for private pension plans, and by 1970, these pensions were holding over $100 billion of assets. But this growth also brought problems like corruption and mismanagement. The government and President Gerald Ford stepped in. On Labor Day 1974, the president signed a new law called the Employment Retirement Income Security Act, or ERISA. ERISA established that pensions needed special protections, which meant the people who manage that money should be held to high standards. They should follow something called the prudent man rule. The prudent man standard says if you're a fiduciary of a trust, you have to make your investments in the way a prudent man would manage his own affairs. M.R. Sauter is an assistant professor at the College of Information Studies at the University of Maryland. And they're quoting the original prudent man standard, which came out of a Supreme Court case from 1830. The language in ERISA was modified, but the basic principle was the same. When deciding how to invest, pension managers should channel this prudent man. For example, a prudent man puts his money in U.S. Treasury bonds and blue chip stocks. The new law also identified what the prudent man would not do. It said that investments in new or untried enterprises were imprudent. And this was very alarming to what was then a budding venture capital industry. The venture capital firms that had just started getting involved with institutional investors were like, what, what happened to all that money? And so this small but very motivated group of venture capital boosters started lobbying for changes to ERISA. And in 1979, they succeeded in getting a couple crucial changes to the prudent man standard. Change number one was adopting a more flexible stance on risk. It's this idea that high risk investments are okay as long as you're balancing them with 
low-risk investments. Change number two, pension funds could put up to 10% of their assets in venture funds. After the ERISA clarification in 1979, there are many people who come out of the woodwork and are like, this has saved venture capital. So should a prudent person invest in crypto? Well, the Department of Labor is urging caution. It is a guidance telling people to be on guard for the various risks. Jasmine Sethi is an associate director of policy research at Morningstar. Jasmine says some of the biggest risks around crypto are a lack of consistent valuations and the absence of legal protections if something goes wrong. We don't want a bunch of people uh, very upset about losses or uh, hacking or other issues and then saying, oh, where's the government? There are already signs of a sharp divide between the government and certain investors when it comes to crypto. One 401k provider has sued the Department of Labor over the guidance it issued. It says the agency is overstepping its authority and unfairly restricting crypto investments. So for now, it's looking like the government and the financial sector could be headed for another showdown over what the prudent investor should be doing. Waylon Wong. Darian Woods, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. The creator of ABC's series Abbott Elementary has made history as the first black woman to be nominated three times in the Emmy's comedy category. We'll speak with her. That's coming up. Got some milky skies out there today that should give way to clear skies tonight. Lows about 63. Weekend is looking pretty spectacular. Tomorrow, sunshine moving up to the mid-80s should stay around the mid-80s on Sunday with sunshine and a few fair weather clouds around. Could have clouds, but still mild temperatures early next week. This is 90.9 WBUR, 75 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE, SIPC. Glam Rock Pioneer Roxy Music. Who wore satin pants and tiger print shirts get ready for their 50th anniversary tour. My original stage outfits, I can't even get my arm into the leg part of it. I was so thin. Guitarist Phil Manzanera looks back on playing with one of the most innovative bands ever, Saturday on Weekend Edition, from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. People are remembering former New Orleans Mayor Moon Landrew as a game changer and a political patriarch. He died this week at age 92 and will be buried tomorrow. Landrew was a white Democrat who opposed segregation in the 1960s and 70s. He won the New Orleans mayoral seat with rare support from across the racial divide. His daughter is former U.S. Senator Mary Landrew. Senator Landrew, welcome and my condolences on your loss. Thank you, Ari. We really appreciate it. 
as a child, were you aware of how groundbreaking your father was or was he just your dad? Well, I was somewhat aware, honestly. Um, it was so clear to me that he was just something special. And to understand his public life, I guess it's important um, to understand his private life. And he was just such an amazing human being um, from my earliest memories. Can you tell us a story? Yes. I mean, there's so many stories. We have laughed and cried now for weeks and are so looking forward. But he didn't take himself seriously, but he was always a man that you could tell that he lived purposefully. He loved my mother beyond measure, had a sign on you know, his desk that he kept until Katrina washed it away, saying the greatest thing a father could ever do for his children is to love their mother. So hmm. that was evident to me as the oldest child, let me say, you know, as the eldest child, that my dad was something special. What did he teach you about leadership and specifically about racial equality? Well, he was the consummate coach and counselor when it came to leadership. One day he was so frustrated with me. I gave a speech. I thought it was pretty good to a small crowd. He came up to me. He said, daughter, do you know the difference between performance and leadership? And I paused and I've never forgotten it. That is my father. He was not a performer. He was a leader. He said, you lead from your own mind and heart. And if you don't know a subject well enough that you can speak extemporaneously in 10 minutes, then you shouldn't be talking about it. It was rare for a white Southern politician of his generation to support racial equality as unequivocally as he did. Where do you think he got that set of values? Well, he's told us where he got them and basically from the Jesuits. They're um, call for social justice and equity. And on one of the first days of law school, he met Norman Francis, who was president of Xavier and a longest serving college president in the history of the nation. He walked into school with dad on the first day and, and dad put out his hand and said, I know who you are. He's the first African-American law school. Pascal and I, that was his other friend, want to be your friend, will be your friend. And from his relationship with Norman Francis, who helped my father see more clearly the injustices of segregation. And Norman would share stories about how he was growing up. And so my dad, I mean, he lived in a segregated community. He understood the pain, but he didn't understand it as well as when Norman explained it. What do you think his legacy in New Orleans and in Louisiana is going to be? I hope people will realize what a faithful, faithful man he was to God, to his wife, to his family. Um, and he also was not ambitious in the sense of grasping for public office. He, he wanted it to do the job and to serve, but he wasn't um, like so many people are, oh, what can I do next? Dad just would say to us, do the job you're given to do, do it as well as it can be done, and then, you know, trust God for, you know, what's the future. Former Louisiana Senator Mary Landrieu, thank you for remembering your father with us. Thank you. Abbott Elementary creator and star Quinta Brunson could make history at the Emmys on Monday, but she's already made history as the first black woman to receive three nominations in comedy categories in the same year. NPR TV critic Eric Deggins spoke with Brunson on how her mother inspired network TV's latest comedy series hit. 
Quinta Brunson wasn't trying to win awards or accolades when she developed the idea for a TV mockumentary about an elementary school in Philadelphia. But she did want to craft a sharp workplace comedy about small moments every teacher faces. I don't know how many TV shows about TV shows or TV shows about the TV industry we can watch. I think Abbott weirdly is very small and that serves as the escapism for, for an audience. I wanted people to fall in love with this world where it's almost as if the outside world doesn't exist. It seems Brunson touched a nerve. The show has already won several awards from the TV Critics Association and an Emmy for casting at the Creative Arts Awards on Sunday. Brunson says some of Abbott Elementary's success comes from its authenticity. The school it depicts is fictional, named after her middle school teacher, but it's also like many real-life underfunded schools in Philadelphia. Getting the look right, Brunson admits, required an unusual request. I had to say something that I think a lot of people hadn't heard before, which is like, no white children. I wasn't saying it to be mean or to be prejudiced. It's just that the reality of this school in West Philadelphia is there just wouldn't be white children in this school. Brunson plays Janine Teagues, an overly optimistic second grade teacher who often reveals a little too much to the show's unseen filmmakers. There was a great website called A to Z123 that taught me how to read when I was a kid. My parents certainly weren't around to do it. <laughs> I had to potty train myself. <laughs> Overshare. TV veteran Cheryl Lee Ralph plays Barbara Howard, an experienced teacher who balances Janine's optimism with practicality, explaining why teachers treat each other like work friends, rarely connecting with each other outside of the school. We come here, we love our kids, we are good colleagues, and then we leave. But I just feel like it doesn't have to be that way. Girl, this ain't a sorority. I'm not shoplifting Plan B for you. Earlier this year, a woman filed a lawsuit against Brunson and ABC, claiming that Abbott Elementary is a knockoff of a series she created in 2018. Brunson declined to comment on the lawsuit, but she did say Janine and Barbara are both inspired by her mother, a retired kindergarten teacher in Philadelphia, who could be both practical and wildly optimistic. Brunson says she dreamed up the show back in 2017 after an argument with her mother at her school. She wanted her mother to retire from a grueling, increasingly dangerous job. Her mother wanted her to quit comedy. Then a woman showed up for a parent-teacher conference. And I just watched her son go play with blocks while my mom had this conference with this woman. And it was just so moving to me. And I was like, wow, I, these are all the makings of a show. That real-life moment became a scene on the show when Janine, who's upset about her own absent mom, confronts a parent who shows up late for a conference. It's not fair that they have to be more of a grown-up than you are, and the only time you reach out is when you ask for a Disney Plus login. Um, I have my own login, and I was stuck in the ER. There was a guy with a bullet in his groin, and I thought it'd be a good idea to stick around and help him get it out. Is that okay with you? As the show competes in six more Emmy categories on Monday, Brunson could make more history, turning the inspiration from her mother into landmark wins at TV's biggest award show. I'm Eric Deggins. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Avalara, sales tax automation for businesses of all sizes. Designed to simplify sales tax compliance with real-time rates and automatic filing. Learn more at avalara.com. 
and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from LifeLock by Norton, working to help consumers protect themselves against identity theft. Learn more at lifelock.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Hazy skies out there right now. We have more nice weather coming up over the weekend. Tonight, clear, not quite as cool as last night was in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, summery weather, sunny skies, mild temperatures in the mid-80s for a high. Could have a few clouds moving in for Sunday, partly sunny skies, and high should be back up in the 80s. 75 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In Ukraine, shelling at a nuclear power plant in the midst of a war zone has destroyed the plant's last reliable off-site power source. The United Nations is calling for a security zone around the plant to prevent a nuclear accident. Our story is coming up on this Friday, September 9th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the death of Queen Elizabeth yesterday has been met with mournful tributes. We'll hear from people in Scotland as they reflect on her legacy. We'll also hear from critics of Britain's past colonial violence. There are other sectors that have began to demand apologies for slavery, demand reparations to descendants of the formerly enslaved persons of these islands. The Commonwealth's complicated history coming up. CNN got a new chairman and CEO in May. A few months later, there were high-profile firings. We'll hear the latest. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A Servants of Remembrance today at Britain's St. Paul's Cathedral for Queen Elizabeth, attended by thousands. Britain's new King Charles also paid tribute to his mother in his first public speech, describing her 96 years as a life well-lived and vowing to continue her promise to serve the United Kingdom. Bill Marks reports. In an emotional pre-recorded address, Charles spoke of the warmth, humor, and positivity of the woman he called Darling Mama following her death in Scotland. Thank you for your love and devotion to our family and to the family of nations you have served so diligently all these years. Charles described how her, quote, dedication and devotion as sovereign never wavered through times of change and progress. He also announced that his eldest son, William, would replace him as the Prince of Wales and take on many of the responsibilities he himself has held for the past half century. The broadcast took place at the same time as a service to commemorate the Queen began at St Paul's Cathedral. For NPR News, I'm Bill Marks in London. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says Ukraine is making progress in a counteroffensive against Russian forces in the south and east of the country. NPR's Michelle Kellerman has the story. Fresh from a day trip to Ukraine, Blinken was asked at NATO about Ukrainian advances on the battlefield. The initial signs 
uh, are positive, and we see Ukraine making real demonstrable progress in a deliberate way. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg also says there are encouraging signs, but warns the operation could last a long time. He's appealing to allies to supply Ukraine with what it needs to get through winter, not only weapons, but also tents and generators. Secretary Blinken also cautions that Russia's president has demonstrated he will, quote, throw a lot of people into Ukraine, despite the cost to Russia. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. King Jong-un is ruling out negotiations that would lead to North Korea's denuclearization. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports Kim is citing a new law in his country. Leader Kim Jong-un said in a speech to parliament that the new law prevents Pyongyang's nuclear arsenal from being bargained away. The law describes North Korea as a responsible nuclear state that sees its nukes as a weapon of last resort but it also reserves the right to use those nukes preemptively if an attack is imminent or to get the upper hand in a conventional war. NPR's Anthony Kuhn. President Biden traveled to Ohio today for the groundbreaking of a new Intel computer chip plant with midterm election politics as a backdrop. With a tough Senate contest underway in the state, plenty of attention is being focused there. Democratic Representative Tim Ryan and Republican author and venture capital exec J.D. Vance are vying for the seat. On Wall Street, stocks gained ground the Dow up 377 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Attorney General and Democratic gubernatorial candidate Maura Healey says she supports a rail line to connect eastern and western parts of the state. Alden Bourne reports on our comments earlier today in Springfield. Attorney General Healey was in western Massachusetts for her first visit to the region since winning the Democratic primary for governor. She says her vision goes beyond just rail service connecting Pittsfield to Boston via Springfield. It's our buses, it's our regional transit authorities, it's our rails, it's our microtransit, all of this, right, that we need to find ways to support because it will bring about the kinds of opportunities that all of us want to see here. U.S. Representative Richard Neal also spoke at the event. He said the reality of East-West Rail has never been closer. I know the availability of funding for the state right now. It's the best of my lifetime. Neal says that's because of various sources of federal money. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. The MBTA announced today two-thirds of the Orange Line repairs are complete. Trains have not been running for three weeks, so crews can finish their work faster. The T says it's ready to deploy 60 new subway cars to increase service when the line reopens as scheduled September 19th. Data from the U.S. Drought Monitor show the heavy rain earlier this week provided some drought relief to the state. 10% of the state is now in extreme drought. That's down from nearly 40% last week. However, UMass Amherst Geosciences professor David Bout says the rain may dissipate too quickly to make up the difference for local streams, ponds, and groundwater. If that four inches of precipitation came, let's say, a few months from now, it would have, let's say, a larger impact because that water is not being used by vegetation. It's not being evaporated you know, back into the atmosphere. Bout says it will take time and more rain for local water systems to get back up to pre-drought levels. In the forecast, no water, no wet weather at all. In fact, pretty dry and beautiful over the weekend. Tonight, clear skies, lows about 63. Tomorrow, bright with a light breeze, warming to the mid-80s. Sunday, partial sunshine, highs about 83 degrees. 75 degrees now in Boston at 506. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put clients' interests first. Fisher Investments, clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. We start this hour in Ukraine, where a crisis at a nuclear plant appears to be escalating. Earlier today, the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency put out a statement saying the risk of an accident at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant had, quote, significantly increased. He called for an immediate nuclear safety zone around the plant. Let me be clear. The shelling around Saporizhia nuclear power plant must stop. NPR's Jeff Brumfield has been tracking these developments and joins us now. Hi, Jeff. Hi there, Elsa. Okay, so can you just catch us up on the latest? What exactly is happening right now? Right. So this is a Ukrainian plant. It's been occupied by Russia since March, but Ukrainians continue to operate it. And it's been supplying power to both Russian and Ukrainian-held territory. The current situation really started in August. There was this big uptick in shelling. Both sides blame each other for that. But at the start of this month, that shelling led the last main power line connecting the plant to the grid uh, to go down. And about four days after that, a backup line went down. That means the entire plant has been cut off from the electricity grid for about four days. And that's not good because nuclear plants need power. And explain why that is. Right. So these plants obviously produce electricity, but they also require it to operate all their safety systems and, most importantly, their cooling systems. Pumps to keep water moving through the cores uh, and keep them from overheating need to keep running. If they stop, a meltdown is, is possible. God. Okay, but you said that they've been without power from the grid for four days now. Do we know how they've been keeping the plant safe during that time? Yeah, interestingly, this type of reactor is able to run in something called islanding islanding operation mode. That basically means that they keep the reactor on or keep one of the reactors on, but turn it way down so it's not producing a lot of power. It's a pretty cool trick, and it can power the rest of the plant, but it can't go on forever because the other equipment just isn't designed to run at low power like this. And Grossi also says the workers are a factor. They live in a nearby town that's lost power, water, and sewage. He's concerned that the staff will have to leave for their own safety. And that's another reason that the plant's Ukrainian owners are discussing whether to shut it down. So if they do shut down the last reactor at the plant, does that mean this crisis will be over? So unfortunately not. It actually makes things a little bit worse in the short term. I mean, if you think of a nuclear plant like cooking uh, on Uh a stove, you might think it's like a stove. You can turn down the stove and it just turns off. It's actually more like cooking on charcoal. So even Uh when you're done, those coals stay hot. And that means water needs to keep going to the cores. Um, I spoke to a nuclear engineer named Steve Nesbitt with the American Nuclear Society. He says uh, all plants are prepared for this kind of emergency. They have backup generators to keep the water pumping. We don't want to go on the diesel generators, but it's a, it's a situation you can, you can abide by for a while. And in the case of Zaporizhia, the IAEA says, says they normally have about 10 days of fuel on site, but it might be a little less because we know they've had to run those generators a little bit. Okay, so if they shut the reactor down, the clock starts ticking, they'll need to get more fuel to the site for those generators. I don't want to speculate too much here, but what would be the worst case scenario at that point? 
Well, the worst case scenario is the reactors, uh, the generators run out of fuel, the reactors heat up and there might be a meltdown. But just before we go, I want to say this won't be a Chernobyl-like crisis. These are much newer reactors. Uh, they're safer. They have containment buildings that could potentially help. Mm -hmm. The IAEA doesn't want to test any of this stuff. And for that reason, they're calling on all sides to cut it out, knock it off right now. That is NPR's Jeff Brumfield. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you. Everyone knew Britain's Queen Elizabeth was likely to die soon. She was 96. Yet for many, it's still a shock. NPR's Philip Reeves filed this report from the city of Edinburgh, Scotland, where the Queen is expected to lie at rest in the coming days. It's hard to grasp the scale of the loss many British people feel right now. Some themselves find it hard to fathom. I've been very moved since I heard the news yesterday. When the news actually broke, I was far more moved than I anticipated. That's Robin Carr, a retired businessman. We're outside Holyrood House, the 16th century palace that was the Queen's and is now the King's official residence in Scotland. Carr could have stayed home watching the TV coverage, yet... I just felt compelled to come and be part of a group of people who were probably thinking much the same as me, and it's helping me deal with it, to come down and see other people grieving, with a small g, but grieving for, for the loss of someone very special. A crowd mills around outside the palace gates. People are laying down flowers. Health worker Elsha Scott is here with her husband Bradley. I ask her why she came. I was very, very upset when the news, you know, came out last night and we just wanted to come and pay our respects. Yeah, the first thing on your mind this morning. Yeah. Not far away is Robert Milligan, a retired Scottish infantryman clad in tartan trousers. Milligan was watching The Simpsons when Queen Elizabeth's death was announced. When it came up, oh, and I turned it on and I went, oh no, it's no real, but it is real. I can see you're, you're pretty upset about it. Oh, yeah. She's like, we had somebody to love. Those who don't particularly revere Britain's royals or believe its monarchy should be abolished can find the intensity of these emotions puzzling. Yet for Milligan, it's about who the Queen was. She was like personal to everybody. Even if we came from the smallest village, she was like everybody's mummy and everybody loved her. Philip Reeves, NPR News, Edinburgh. The Queen reigned through many global upheavals, including the end of the British Empire. And as some critics have pointed out, remembrances may not feel complete without acknowledging the impact of British colonialism, especially on countries in Africa and in the Caribbean. Matthew J. Smith is a professor of history at University College London and director of the school's Center for the Study of the Legacies of British Slavery. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you, Ari. Briefly remind us what the relationship was between the UK and the Commonwealth of Nations when the Queen began her reign 70 plus years ago. Yes, well, by then, most of the islands in the Caribbean were still colonies. In fact, there were just very few that were fully independent. By the next decade, though, when she would have been in her first decade of her reign, you began to see some very powerful stirrings that would manifest in independence in many of the islands by then. So she came to the throne at a period of remarkable transition in the Commonwealth Caribbean. And can you tell us about some notable instances of violence against anti-colonial movements during the Queen's reign? 
much of the sorts of associations with violence would have happened outside the Caribbean region, particularly um, in parts of Africa, which are very well known. Perhaps a pronounced example, which has been well documented, has been the case of the Mau Mau rebels in Kenya that were fighting for independence there. But, you know, much of these sorts of struggles may not all have involved armed conflict, but they did involve very sort of guided and heavy hand by the British colonial powers at the time. It may not have had uh, explicit violence, but it, it had uh, scars, nonetheless, that were borne by many people during that transition. Do you think the Queen did enough in her lifetime to acknowledge or, or to repair the harm that was done to people in these countries? I think the Queen was quite well aware of it. One of the things that's striking about Queen Elizabeth, um, to me, is the, how worldly she seemed to have been, how knowledgeable she seemed to have been. But at the same time, she had a commitment to her job, and her job was a reigning monarch of Britain. And that came with all sorts of historical uh, sorts of, you know, a- aspects to it, antecedents that she very much supported because that was her job to support it. How does the range of reactions that we've seen to her death reflect the Queen's place in the history of the British Empire and, and the nations that it colonized? I think it reflects it very powerfully, and I think it, it reflects very strongly the sort of contradiction within these former colonial states between what it means to be attached to Britain and what it means to be independent. The transition that she reigned over, where that question between what is your attachment to Britishness and what is the a new sense of nationalism, what should that look like? And the tension that emerges within it is a tension to elevate instead Africa and the black ancestors who were enslaved by by the same colonial forces that were being revered in these other quarters. You have roots in Jamaica and have said that you've noticed a generational divide in how people there perceive Queen Elizabeth. What does that look like? I remember as a child seeing on television the marriage of then Prince Charles, now King Charles III, and Princess Diana, and being sort of told this is a major event, but feeling personally alienated as someone who is of a post-colonial generation, from seeing how that has any real impact on the life I had in Jamaica as a Jamaican. Uh, But I I do see that there are sectors of these societies that feel very strongly that attachment. And there are other sectors that are very resistant to it, that have come out now as they have during the period of the Queen's Jubilee back in June and began to demand apologies for slavery, demand reparations and reparative justice to uh, descendants of the formerly enslaved persons of these islands whose hard labor and oppression uh, was done without freedom, forced that built in many ways a lot of the wealth of the British Empire. So what do you think this transition ultimately is going to mean for the monarchy and its relationship with the countries that it still has these ties to around the world? It's a remarkable period of reflection. And it should that's a reflection that needs to be had at the local levels, not just state leaders, but the populations themselves. What does it mean to have still had, and these are the countries that were, uh, that maintain these ties to uh, the queen. Has the time come now for that to be fully abrogated and for this, this sense of independence to be fully realized? Matthew J. Smith is a professor of history at University College London and director of the School Center for the Study of the Legacies of British Slavery. Thank you very much. My pleasure. 
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on All Things Considered. Who is responsible for a growing problem of homelessness around Denver? On Wall Street today, the stock market ended the first full week with an upswing. The Dow rose about one and two-tenths of a percent, 377 points, to close at 32,152. S&P gained about one and a half percent to finish at 4,067. The Nasdaq picked up a little over two percent to close at 12,000. 112. Details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. There'll be no easing up of restrictions on lobster fishing in Maine. This afternoon, a federal judge has turned down a lawsuit from lobstermen who object to the new rules meant to protect right whales from getting entangled in lobster fishing gear. The Maine Lobstermen's Association and the state say the rules from the National Marine Fisheries Service limit how and where they can fish, and that puts the industry at risk. The ruling comes a few days after the group Seafood Watch recommended seafood vendors avoid selling American and Canadian lobster because of the danger to the whales. And a popular Vermont ski resort that's long been in financial trouble has a new owner. Jay Peak has been purchased by Pacific Group Resorts. The Utah-based company had the highest bid, although the amount is not being disclosed. Jay Peak had been under receivership for more than six years after a massive fraud case that involved its former owner and president. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at MathWorks.com careers. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering, and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The number of unhoused people living in America's suburbs has grown by more than 20 percent since 2016, according to federal estimates. In the case of Denver's suburbs, that is causing conflicts with the city. Colorado Public Radio's Andrew Kenny reports. I'm standing beneath 6th Avenue in Denver, where the highway crosses over the rail yards and into downtown. In the shadow of the overpass, there's a camp, a tent, pallets, tarps, and bike trailers. It's the kind of makeshift shelter that people without homes have set up across the city, from industrial areas like this to the sidewalks of upscale urban neighborhoods. A recent survey found more than 1,300 people living on the streets of Denver, a 30% increase from before the pandemic, in addition to thousands more living in shelters. But this isn't just a city issue. Not far from the camp, a light rail train is pulling in. In the last few years, more people in need have ridden this train to look for a better life in Denver's suburbs. At the end of the line is Douglas County, some 30 miles south, where the median household income is one and a half times higher than in Denver, one of the highest in the country. This is the E-Line to Ridgegate Parkway. 
Stand Among free. those who have made the trip are Conrad Jackson and his wife, Sabrina Morgan. They're both 38 years old. They're resting with their dogs and their bike trailer along a rushing four-lane road, having arrived just a couple days earlier. They say in Douglas County, there's just less less bullcrap. I mean, there's less drugs. There's less. There's a lot less bad everything. The county estimates there are about 160 people experiencing homelessness in the area, a tiny fraction of the number in Denver, but a sharp increase from the past. Sheriff Tony Spurlock. I think we really started to see the visible um, homelessness in the last three years. Some officials blame the light rail line, which was finished in 2019. But housing advocates say people are becoming homeless in the suburbs, too, as housing prices skyrocket. Douglas County is trying and struggling to respond. I started this role approximately four weeks ago. Tammy Bozarth, the very first sheriff's deputy focused on homelessness, is talking to Jackson and Morgan on the side of that four-lane road. So where do you guys live? I mean, are you, like, living in Lone Tree? Or you, do you have an encampment somewhere else? Or do you... Kind of bounce around. So do you guys need resources or? She asks if they need help, but says Douglas County can't offer much. Unfortunately, we don't have any homeless camps here in Douglas County. Um, otherwise, I would you know, gladly take you there. In June, officials discussed opening a legal homeless camp here, but quickly canceled the idea after backlash from residents at a town hall meeting. We didn't allow vagrancy 40 years ago, and we shouldn't allow it now. And I live in Douglas County for a reason, and I don't want that crap here. Send it back to Denver where it belongs. Thank you. So for now, Douglas County Sheriff's deputies sometimes give people rides to other cities like Denver and Aurora, where there are shelters and services. Aurora Mayor Mike Kaufman says that's just Douglas County unloading unwanted people. I think this is dumping. This is dumping, pure and simple. Kathy Alderman with Colorado Coalition for the Homeless says this kind of squabbling is typical as suburban areas try to adjust to a new reality. Their first reaction is how do we get rid of homelessness? And often cities will implement camping bans and they will do things like how can we bus people experiencing homelessness out of our area? And that's just not solutions driven. Douglas County leaders say they're talking to voters about why they have to expand services and asking churches to provide shelter instead. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Kenny in Denver. This week brought news of the death of CNN founding anchor Bernard Shaw, known for pursuing the news and avoiding flash. And in recent days, CNN's new leader has made moves that he says will return the cable channel closer to its news-driven roots. Some of his changes have sparked concerns inside and outside the network. And for more on that, we have NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. Hey, David. Hey, Elsa. Hey. Okay, so tell us, who is CNN's new CEO and chairman, Chris Licht, and how does he want to reshape CNN exactly? Sure. Uh, Chris Lick came over after stints at CBS, uh, where he oversaw the Colbert uh, Late Show, and he had also been at CBS News and before that MSNBC. He's promising in this incarnation at CNN that he's going to make the channel less opinion-driven, less perhaps focused on Donald Trump as the one true story that they really rode during the Trump era. This has been a passion of Discovery CEO David Zaslav and Discovery's biggest investor, John Malone. Let's not forget that they just took over Time Warner and CNN recently. Lick says he's not going to pull any punches. It doesn't mean that they're going to stop reporting. If anything, he wants to really focus more on news than opinion. He made the rounds with Republicans as well as Democrats on Capitol Hill and at the Biden White House making this case about how he sees CNN. And he also promises with 
without specifying, he says CNN's got to be more entertaining and better TV and over time that's going to improve ratings too. Okay, so what specific changes are we going to be seeing on the air? Well, perhaps the most recent appointment has been of John Miller. He's a senior New York Police Department official who also has a a strong history in in news. He helped interview uh, Osama bin Laden in the late 90s, but has been focused on counterterrorism in recent years and has been the source of some criticism from Muslim groups for that. Licht also dispensed with the services of uh, media critic and host Brian Stelter. He killed the show Reliable Sources. They say they're reformulating how they're going to cover the media. And I think there are a lot of questions about the morning shows. Uh, Licht had real success uh, creating Morning Joe over at MSNBC, creating what is now CBS Mornings as a reformulated show there. And there are questions about what that's going to look like. Of late, Brianna Kyler, who had been known for doing these long videos kind of breaking down and eviscerating uh, Donald Trump's uh, falsehoods and lies, you know, recently has spent a lot of time lately going after President Biden for his address last week in Philadelphia, in which he termed the MAGA wing of the Republican Party a threat to American democracy. Well, amidst all these changes you're describing, I saw that CNN's White House correspondent, John Harwood, announced that he's leaving. I'm curious, does Harwood's departure fit into this bigger story? Well, let's pause and play a little clip from earlier in the day on the same day that John Harwood announced he was going to depart CNN. Harwood was talking live on the air about the very same Biden speech. And he said that Biden was right in arguing that the MAGA part of the Republican Party was a threat to American democracy. Now, that's something that's not easy for us as journalists to say. We're brought up to believe there's two uh, different political parties with different uh, points of view, and we don't take sides in honest disagreements between them. But that's not what we're talking about. These are not honest disagreements. Harwood knew at the time he was saying that on the air that he was going to be leaving the network. He just hadn't said so publicly yet. But the episode encapsulated, I think, the tension between the CNN that's been and the CNN that's evolving. Mm-hmm. Licht says there's nothing wrong with what John Harwood was doing. He wants to reshape the team that's covering the White House to focus more on reporting and less on analysis. But Licht is also not filling out for viewers of CNN or particularly for the staff at CNN exactly what his moves are representing. At the moment, there are a lot of people, well, there are a lot of conservatives who are very happy to hear what Licht is saying. There are a lot of people who fear he's trying to defang CNN, which was so critical of Trump in so many ways, often, you know, to its detriment, that if you defang CNN, it becomes either a a Fox light or just kind of neutered. Licht says, no, no, watch and see. Trust me, we're going to get back to our roots. That is NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. Thank you, David. You bet. And thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And listening on 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox try to shake off having been swept by Tampa Bay as they take the field in Baltimore tonight. Brian Bayo pitches for Boston and Austin Voth for the Birds. Start time is 7.05. New England Patriots open their season Sunday in Miami to play the Dolphins. It's going to be Mac Jones' second season as quarterback. ESPN reporter Mike Reese says the Pats have concerns following a rough training camp. The team's longtime offensive coordinator, Josh McDaniels, has left the Pats, and coach Bill Belichick is making some changes. There have been some rocky transition moments uh, for the offense. Now in charge is sort of a committee. Matt Patricia has been calling the plays. He's a former defensive coach that has switched over to offense. The quarterback's coach, Joe Judge, has been more of a special teams coach, and Bill Belichick's been involved. But that whole change 
has come with some rocky moments for them. The Pats kick off against the Dolphins Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock. It's 5.30. She wasn't meant to be queen at all, but her uncle had abdicated the throne, and here she was. It felt like this is something we did. We had a queen. We had a new queen. It felt like the natural order of things, and it was her job to sustain that impression. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Ohio, President Biden hit the road today for a groundbreaking ceremony of a new Intel computer chip facility in Columbus. The president, who championed the legislation to lure Intel to Ohio, touted some of the benefits it will bring to the region. Brand new $20 billion campus, 7,000 construction jobs, union construction jobs, 3,000 full-time jobs that will pay an average of $135,000 a year, and not all of them will require a college degree. Biden's visit comes as Democrats in Ohio face a closely contested Senate race in November between Democratic Representative Tim Ryan and Republican venture capitalist J.D. Vance. But Ryan has been seeking recently to distance himself from the White House. In Michigan, meanwhile, the board in charge of certifying statewide elections has approved two proposed amendments for the November ballot. One amends the state's abortion rights and the other expands voting rights. From Michigan Public Radio, Rick Pluta reports. Mary Ellen Gerwitz is a Democrat on the Michigan Board of State Canvassers. She said the only question for the board was whether the petition campaigns collected enough valid signatures. It is really important for us to recognize that this is um, a victory for the people of Michigan who signed in such record numbers. The petitions both for promote the vote and for reproductive freedom. The Republican board chair said the court decision settles the question of whether typos and formatting errors are grounds for disqualifying a question after signatures have been turned in. For NPR News, I'm Rick Pluta in Lansing. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street, ending a nearly month-long losing streak. Big gains today in tech and energy shares, but uncertainty about the Fed's upcoming interest rate hike remains high. The Dow gained 377 points, up more than 1%. This is NPR. Officials in Ukraine say they are making progress in their counteroffensive to take back occupied parts of the Kharkiv region in the northern or northeastern part of the country. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny reports. In his daily address, President Volodymyr Zelensky said the counteroffensive in both the northeast and the south has had some successes in its first days. He claimed that more than a thousand square kilometers have been liberated since the beginning of September and released video of Ukrainian soldiers raising the Ukrainian flag in Balaklia. Those claims have not been independently confirmed. In the Kharkiv region, where Ukraine launched a surprise counteroffensive, many towns and villages have been occupied by Russia for more than six months. The commander in chief of the Ukrainian armed forces was sparse with details, but said, quote, it is very difficult for us, but we are moving forward. Alyssa Nadwarni, NPR News, Dnipro, Ukraine. Europe is struggling to cope with an energy crisis caused by Russia's cutback on natural gas. EU officials say it's a pressure game over their support for Ukraine after Russia's invasion. Europe has made some progress in finding new gas supplies by ship and by filling underground gas storage to get through the winter heating season. 
Their goal, of course, is to avoid rolling blackouts or widespread shutdowns when the weather gets colder. Stocks finished higher to end the week on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Voters in November will get to decide if they want to overturn the new Massachusetts law that allows undocumented residents to obtain a driver's license. The Secretary of State's office this afternoon announced it has certified the signatures gathered by opponents of the law who want the question on the ballot. The legislature passed the measure earlier this year over a veto by Governor Charlie Baker. As students head back to school, inflation is causing problems for companies that provide transportation for students. For one thing, the price of diesel gas that fuels buses is $1.71 a gallon higher than it was a year ago. Jill Kaufman reports higher prices are causing problems for companies that transport students. John McCarthy is a longtime school bus contractor in Brookfield, Massachusetts. He runs buses for nine districts around the state. Some have five-year contracts. Only a few allow for a fuel price adjustment. And just sort of holding on white knuckle and going to do the best we can until those contracts expire. But it's not just the cost of diesel. Everything from tires to windshield washer fluid. You know, everything is affected by the inflation. And McCarthy is anticipating future cost increases. Companies can take on more side work, he says, like field trips, where the rate is negotiable. He's actually expanded his business, adding gasoline-powered vans to the fleet for special needs students. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. The stepmother of a missing New Hampshire girl who's believed to be dead was arrested today for failing to appear in court. Kayla Montgomery faces charges of lying to investigators. That's related to the disappearance of her stepdaughter, Harmony, three years ago. Investigators believe Harmony Montgomery was murdered in 2019. Nobody's been charged for the girl's murder. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley introduced legislation in the House today to honor Bill Russell. Presley calls the legendary Boston Celtics player and coach an undisputed champion on the court and in the fight for civil rights. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey have introduced a companion resolution in the U.S. Senate. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at mparchitectsboston.com. Sunsets at 7.04 tonight. Not long after, look to the east and see a full harvest moon rising. As a bonus, look to the left of the moon. You could see a big, bright Jupiter along the horizon. Then look to the right of the moon. You get to see Saturn a little bit higher up. And lucky for us, the weather should cooperate. Nice clear skies tonight, about 63. Tomorrow and Sunday, partly to mostly sunny in the 80s. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Paycom a tool for HR and payroll, designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. More at nature.org solutions. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Abortion restrictions and bans across the South are forcing people to travel hundreds of miles to get the procedure in states that still allow it. It's a massive barrier, especially for pregnant teenagers. They have to navigate laws around parental permission, too. 
For years, Tennessee teens traveled to Nashville to get a judge's permission for an abortion instead of telling their parents. For member station WPLN, Paige Flager reports on what options are left for those teens now. Juvenile court judge Sheila Calloway remembers the faces of the pregnant teens who came into her chambers in Nashville. They're scared, anxious, or nervous. And they were young. Children as young as 14. For years, teens traveled from all over Tennessee to ask Judge Calloway for something called a judicial bypass. It was a rarely talked about part of Tennessee law that let young people go to a judge instead of their parents for permission to get an abortion. Calloway would approve about 10 each year. And half the time, she says teens don't want to tell their families because they were raped or assaulted, sometimes by a family member. There are at least 10 girls in our community each year that will be forced to have a pregnancy that either they're not ready for, they're not prepared for, and they're going to be forced to do so, even if it is a situation of incest, which has happened. Calloway and the lawyers who helped represent these young people have never spoken publicly about judicial bypass until now. Good morning. My name is Rachel Welty. Welty was one of those lawyers. Last month, she joined a group of Democratic lawmakers in front of the state capitol to protest the state's abortion ban. Welty has fiery red hair and wore a shirt that says, our bodies, our futures, our abortions. The days of a teen hopping a Greyhound bus from Memphis so I can assist her with receiving a judicial bypass approval to seek out abortion services is effectively over. Tennessee now has one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country, with no exception for rape, incest, or minors, and a narrow legal defense for the life of the pregnant person. Judicial bypasses are off the table. Welty says she cried when she heard the news. She immediately thought of the teens who would still need help and wouldn't be able to get any. They're going to have zero options. At least for abortion in this state. Those who support the restrictions say teens could choose adoption or parenting. Tennessee already has one of the highest rates of teen pregnancies in the country, and abstinence-only sex education is taught in schools. But for teens who want an abortion, it won't be easy especially for those who don't want to tell their parents. They'll have to travel hundreds of miles to a state that still allows it, like Illinois. So since June 1st, someone under the age of 18 in Illinois has exactly the same rights to access abortion as someone over the age of 18. Emily Wirth is with the ACLU of Illinois. The change improves access for young people who live in Illinois and for teens coming from out of state. But Worth says the challenges don't end once they get an abortion. We often lose sight of the fact that people under the age of 18 have additional barriers that affect them uniquely, such as the risk that they may be reported as a runaway and face juvenile court consequences for that. Worth says that's one of many roadblocks that pregnant teens may face in post-Roe America. For NPR News, I'm Paige Flager in Nashville. The election denial movie called 2,000 Mules has been thoroughly debunked by fact-checkers. Former Attorney General Bill Barr said the film's premise was, quote, indefensible. Despite those flaws, former President Trump has embraced this film from the conservative provocateur Dinesh D'Souza. A book version of 2,000 Mules was set to hit stores last week before its publisher abruptly recalled it from shelves due to an unexplained publishing error. 
NPR's Tom Dreisbach actually managed to get a copy of the recalled book and is with us now. Hey, Tom. Hey, Elsa. Okay, wait. This book was recalled. How did you get a copy? Yeah, so the recall happened very late to the point that copies were already in stores by the time the publisher, Regnery, had to pull it. I, so I took a chance. I drove in L.A. traffic in a heat wave to <laughs> yeah. about a half dozen stores, first no luck. And then there it was, tucked into the current affairs section of a Barnes & Noble in the San Fernando Valley here in California, brought it to the register and uh, bought it. You drove to the valley. Okay, that is effort. <laughs> what do we know about why this book was pulled? Well, Regnery and D'Souza, the author, have not said. And as far as I could tell, there's not an obvious production error in the book, like a photo being misaligned, bunch of blank pages, that kind of thing. One possibility, though, is that the book could create some legal risk for Dinesh D'Souza. The movie has emerged as a leading theory for election deniers. Trump describes it as essentially proof, despite all those debunkings that you mentioned. The movie's premise is basically that a bunch of left-wing nonprofit groups supposedly conspired to gather ballots and paid people, those are the mules of the title, ah. paid those mules to stuff drop boxes with Biden votes. The movie did not name any specific nonprofits that were accused in this alleged scheme, let alone give them a chance to respond. D'Souza said in interviews that was because lawyers told him he couldn't put them in the movie. The book, however, does name seven groups, and we contacted all of those groups to ask them about this. And what did those groups say? Well, I talked to Aklima Kondoker. She's the chief legal officer for the New Georgia Project. That's the one of the groups named in the book. I asked her what she made of those claims. Malarkey and hogwash, because they're not based in fact, they're based on conspiracy theories, and it sounds like a bunch of lies committed to paper, and there are legal consequences for doing that. She said the allegations from D'Souza are potentially libelous, said that at this point, though, the New Georgia Project was not ready to comment on whether they would actually take legal action. Uh, the Labor Union, the National Education Association, another group named in the book, they said in a statement that the book's claims were, quote, trash and nonsense. Other groups said the allegations were false but did not want to speak publicly and give 2,000 mules more oxygen. Okay. Well, as we've said, these allegations have been thoroughly debunked. So... Where did they come from in the first place? Well, the movie and book are based on claims from a controversial group called True the Vote. Uh, this group says that they proved this alleged scheme by buying commercially available cell phone location data and actually tracking people's movements. Mm. I asked True the Vote about the claims in the book, though, and they completely distanced themselves from the book. They said in a statement, quote, True the Vote had no participation in this book and has no knowledge of its contents. This includes any allegations of activities of any specific organizations made in the book. We made no such allegations, end quote. And I am so curious, what are Dinesh D'Souza and his publisher saying about your reporting so far? Well, D'Souza did not respond to our request for comment okay. uh, before the story came out. After we published our story, he just called it a hit piece and called for the government to cut funding from NPR, but didn't identify any errors or issues with our story. Regnery, the publisher, declined to answer any questions about the recalled book. But we do know already that this mistake, whatever it was that led to the recall, it has had real effects for the company. Regnery is a division of Salem Media, which reduced its quarterly earnings estimates in part because of the recall. So fascinating. That is NPR's Tom Dreisbach. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Elsa.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A barber shop in Portland, Oregon, has made the cut. It's on the National Register of Historic Places. Katie Riddle tells us why. The story of Dean's Barbershop and Beauty Salon begins in 1944. That's when a young married couple set out from Birmingham, Alabama with their three children for a new life. It was a big, big chance they were taking. Kimberly Brown is their granddaughter. Her grandparents were part of the Great Migration. They left the South along with millions of other Black people. Brown says it was a brave choice. But what were they leaving? I mean, you know, sharecropping and Jim Crow and all the horrible things that our ancestors have lived under. It was the chance that they had to take. I feel like it was a kind of a moment of collective hope. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, we, we, there has to be something better. Brown says her grandparents' new life was better. They landed in Oregon. It wasn't an obvious choice. Not that many years previous, the state didn't even allow Black people to live here. But the small number of Black residents made for a close community. Her grandparents bought a house in the heart of that community. Brown stands in front of that same house on this day. Miss Lucille lived there. The family doesn't own it anymore. So it was all the black neighborhood when I was growing up. Everybody around here was black. And now? Everybody around here is white. (laughs) Gentrification and redlining has displaced much of the black community. But one thing that is still here, the barbershop that Brown's grandparents started, she now owns and runs it. My grandmother's station was in that corner. Kimberly Brown is a third-generation hairstylist. Her mom's old chair is behind her. I'll tell customers who've been here a long time, like, go to my mom's chair. They know the chair I'm talking about. Much of the neighborhood has moved away, says Brown, but the shop is a refuge. It's a really community space. You know, even if you don't come anymore, you still feel welcome. You still come in and hang out in the shop. You don't have to get your hair done. You can just come and kick it. Many things happen here besides hair. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hair is one. Of, is probably the least of the things that happens in here. The intangible story of of resilience and continuity over time of a legacy business like Dean's Barbershop is really the next frontier of how we deploy historic preservation resources. Brandon Spencer Hartle is a city planner in Portland. He helped to place the shop on the National Register. He says it's part of a larger effort in cities across the country to reshape the criteria for this designation. It's not just about the buildings you can see from the sidewalk, but about the people who have occupied them. Unlike many buildings on the National Historic register, this one is living history. Noni Kazi is visiting the shop on this day. She started coming here with her mom when she was six. The beauty shop and the barbershop is a place where young people came to learn how to be adults. Kazi recalls spending hours listening to the older ladies sit and talk in the salon. She says they taught her some of her most important life lessons like how to have relationships that lasted forever, how to work through friendships, marriages. And because of that, I was married for like 29 years till death do you part, right? But I only learned that because other women had done it. Kazi says it's not just the women who come of age in Dean's Barbershop and Beauty Salon. She has four sons. The shop provided them with role models too. It's a place, she says, where a boy can see what it means to be a man. For NPR News, I'm Katia Riddle in Portland, Oregon.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, 74 degrees now. We've got a clear night coming up tonight. Good for viewing the full harvest moon. Should be comfortable, about 63. Tomorrow and Sunday, really nice. Sunshine tomorrow, warming to 84. Partly sunny Sunday, rising to 83. On last week's Wait, Wait, Skylar Higley demonstrated the sexism that Serena Williams had to cope with during her legendary career. I don't want to be one of those guys, but I am confident that I could beat Serena in Mario Tennis, so. I'm Peter Sagel. See if you can beat any of our panelists at our game by joining us this week, along with special guest Abby Jacobson. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. It is a big moment for fans of high fantasy, with several high-profile TV series out now. And many fans have grown accustomed to seeing women as secondary characters, debased, assaulted, or effectively treated like wallpaper. So some of us who have been waiting for the new Lord of the Rings prequel have been excited, but also a little nervous. The first few episodes of Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power are out now on Prime Video. The series kicks off from a different perspective. And so we hunted. To the ends of the earth, we hunted Sauron. But the trail grew thin. We're joined now by Rebecca Jennings, who has been writing about The Rings of Power for Vox. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. And I just want to note for our listeners that this conversation may include a few light spoilers for the first few episodes. Rebecca, there is so much to talk about here, but I just want to ask you first, what have you thought of the show so far? So yeah, I, like you, were sort of nervous when it was coming out. We've been waiting for this for years. We've known that this has been in production for at least five years. And I was always a little bit concerned that like, okay, well, in the past two decades since the original Lord of the Rings came out, there's been Game of Thrones, which has kind of taken up the mantle as like the high fantasy mainstream example that we have. And I, my main concern was like, how much is this new version of the Lord of the Rings going to incorporate a lot of what makes Game of Thrones Game of Thrones, namely its gratuitous gore and sex scenes? And I'm happy to say that it does not. (laughs) So I was pleasantly surprised. I will just put this out there. I was a huge Lord of the Rings fan growing up. I've read the books. I watched the movies more times than I should probably admit to. (laughs) I was fascinated with the construction of language. And I think that's probably something you and I have in common. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I read the books. I watched the movies a bajillion times. I love talking about it with my friends. And they're almost all women that I talk about Lord of the Rings with, which I think is very interesting. What do you think is interesting about that? Well, so yeah, there was a really good New York Times piece a year ago written by actually my friend uh, Nikita Richardson about how for so many millennial women, Lord of the Rings was like our Star Wars, you know, like this was our fantasy series that we grew up with that we really related to that just like played such a pivotal role in our development. And just watching it back brings so much joy and nostalgia and comfort. And I think a lot of women share that. So given all of that, I guess I'm just curious what it was like for you to see the opening sequence of The Rings of Power and to see Middle Earth through the eyes of a woman. I mean, the first person that viewers meet is a young Galadriel. But sometimes the lights shine just as brightly reflected in the water as they do in the sky. It's hard to say which way is up and which way is down. 
How am I to know which lies to follow? So I'm just curious for you, what was it like revisiting this world for the first time through Galadriel's eyes? I mean, it was exciting. Whenever I see, you know, a female character in a fantasy, it's like, okay, is she going to be a stereotype? Is she going to be over-sexualized? Is she going to be murdered? Is she just going to be degraded at any possible opportunity? Yeah, so I think part of the reason why, you know, I've been a little skeptical of this series is because, you know, there are two male co-showrunners who really don't have much professional screenwriting um, experience. They are, you know, super Tolkien nerds, which is cool, but, you know, they're they're men, they're, they're Tolkien guys, so... We don't we don't really know yet if this is going to adhere to Tolkien's kind of like, you know, shunting of women, you know, to major side characters or, you know, making women the center of the story. But so far, it looks like women are, you know, at least part of the center of the story, which is cool. As you pointed out in your piece, there is a sizable body of feminist critique of the world that Tolkien created and the way that he constructed the women of Middle-earth. And you cited the scholar Catherine Stimson. Back in 1969, she described the women of Tolkien's world as either beautiful and distant, simply distant, or simply simple from the women that we've seen so far in the rings of power. Is that the case? I don't think so necessarily. I think, I mean, having only seen the first two episodes, it's more of, you know, we see these people and we kind of know their characters. And I think there is a kind of, it's a refreshing simplicity, I would say, about Tolkien's Middle Earth, where, you know, good is good and evil is evil. And I think that's also reflected in the women on screen. So we have the younger Galadriel, and we know Galadriel from the films, but she played a relatively small part in the trilogy. Whereas in this series, she plays... Um, like a warrior princess who's kind of intent on avenging her brother's death by Sauron. And so clearly she is the one with the main driver of the plot. And she's the one that's like leading the battle, leading the action and leading the tension. And so there's already more depth to her. We also have uh, Disa, who is the wife of the dwarf prince Durin. Um, and, and she's sort of portrayed as this warm, loving wife to a very important dwarf. And she seems to also wield... Uh, you know, a, a significant kind of power in the kingdom of Casa Doom. You're staying for dinner. He's leaving. He's staying. He's leaving. He's staying. Make yourself comfortable, please. But not too comfortable. And we see, you know, these proto Hobbit-like creatures, and and the main the main character within that is a is a young, you know, teenage spunky young girl, Nori Brandyfoot. We're not supposed to be out this far. If we didn't do everything we weren't supposed to do, we'd hardly do anything at all. And then there's Bronwyn, who's this healer and single mother. I saw a tunnel dug deep and with care. By what? I cannot say. But, but they were digging towards us. I tell you, we remain here at our peril. We haven't seen any of these characters aside from Galadriel in previous Tolkien works, which, yeah, it could be a really exciting thing or it could be a disappointing thing. This could be, you know, a system where it's like, okay, they're all going to get killed or raped or, you know, degraded in some other way. So the question is still kind of out there. So as you mentioned so far, you have just seen the two episodes of The Rings of Power, but in what you've seen to this point, is this a more feminist rendering of Middle Earth? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think there's certainly a lot more representation in this version of Middle-earth, which I think is really cool. Um, There are POC, which do not exist in The Lord of the Rings outside of, you know, some arguably pretty racist stereotypes. Um, And so so that's been really interesting to see. Like, we never saw a single dwarf woman in in, uh, The Lord of the Rings. And we see a ton of dwarf women in in this one. Um, 
So, so yeah, I mean, I think in terms of representation, yes, I would say that it is absolutely more inclusive um, and diverse, but I'm not sure if we can say, you know, this show is feminist or this show is not because, you know, well, I mean, it does pack the, pass the Bechdel test, which I'm pretty sure Lord of the Rings doesn't. So that's like, you know, that's uh, point one for Rings of Power. <laughs> Rebecca Jennings is a correspondent for Vox. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. More at nature.org solutions. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. King Charles III gives his first speech as monarch today, one day after his mother, Queen Elizabeth, died. He paid tribute to Elizabeth and pledged to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of Britain. The King's speech coming up. It's Friday, September 9th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Canada's official opposition, the Conservative Party, will announce the results of elections for a new party leader tomorrow. The favoured candidate has been compared to Donald Trump. Student borrowers who live in a handful of states and qualify for sweeping student loan relief may have to pay state income taxes on their cancelled loans. And many musicians have found success on streaming services by writing songs centred around a particular child favourite topic. The poop song was literally me on the piano, playing the piano and singing the word poop for a minute and a half. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Britain's King Charles III says he feels profound sorrow over the death of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II, died yesterday at the age of 96 after 70 years on the throne. Charles automatically became king following her death, and today he delivered his first broadcast address to the British people. I know that her death brings great sadness to so many of you, and I share that sense of loss beyond measure 
with you all. The King's remarks, in addition to being broadcast on British television, were also streamed at St. Paul's Cathedral, where 2,000 people, including British Prime Minister Liz Truss and members of her government, gathered today for a service of remembrance. Other countries, meanwhile, are paying tribute to the Queen. NPR's Fatma Tanis reports Arab leaders are sending their condolences to the British royal family. Across the Arab world, days of mourning were announced. Royal families in the Middle East boasted close relations with Queen Elizabeth, and local media across the region are displaying images of the Queen's many visits during her rule. Jordan's King Abdullah called her a dear family friend as he announced seven days of mourning. In a statement, Saudi Arabia's King Salman said the queen was, quote, a model of leadership. And Egypt's president, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, called the queen's death a great loss and said he had, quote, full confidence in the ability of King Charles to fill the space left by Queen Elizabeth. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Istanbul. Two key Democrats in Congress are calling for a federal investigation of how the airlines used billions in COVID relief funding. NPR's David Shaper reports the committee chairs want to know if any of the money was used for pilot buyouts and early retirement packages. Airlines received $54 billion in federal coronavirus relief aid. The taxpayer funding was supposed to be used as payroll support, so airlines could continue to pay employees as travel demand plummeted during the pandemic. As a condition, airlines could not furlough or lay off workers. But several airlines did offer employee buyouts and early retirement packages, and that's left airlines with staffing shortages, especially among pilots, which has contributed to widespread flight delays and cancellations this summer. So House Oversight Committee Chair Carolyn Maloney and COVID Crisis Subcommittee Chair James Clyburn are calling on the Inspector General of the Treasury Department to look into whether any of the federal aid was used for those buyouts. David Shaper, NPR News. The interest rate setting Federal Reserve says it's ending a public comment period ahead of the central bank's next policy meeting later this month. Fed policymakers can expect one more key bit of data on monthly inflation next week ahead of the meeting, though for the most part they've also been downplaying the importance of any single data point. Fed is widely expected to raise rates later this month by another three-quarters of a percent. Stocks continue to move higher. The Dow up 377 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The fight over driver's licenses for all Massachusetts residents, regardless of legal status, is entering a new phase. The Secretary of State's office has announced it certified more than enough signatures that opponents needed to get an appeal of the law on the November ballot. The legislature passed the law earlier this year over Governor Baker's veto. Baker said it would lead to voter fraud. Supporters say the law will make roads safer by holding all drivers accountable. Residents of Wilmington are being told to boil water from their taps because E. coli bacteria has been detected in the town's water system. Town officials want people to boil water for at least one minute before they drink it, make ice, prepare food, brush their teeth, or wash dishes. All ice, drinks, formula, and foods made with Wilmington tap water earlier this week should be tossed out. People are being encouraged to use bottled water. Preparations are being made for the state's official ceremony to be held Sunday to mark the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 terror attacks. It's being organized by the Massachusetts 9-11 Fund. Karen Charles is the chair of the fund's Family Advisory Committee. During the commemoration, she says she will be remembering her husband, Kenneth Zellman, who was killed in the attacks. It's very meaningful and a fitting tribute to honor our loved ones, and our motto is to always remember, and we work really hard to continually always remember. 
The names of the 206 victims with ties to Massachusetts will be read at Sunday's ceremony. Boston Symphony Orchestra says if you're in the audience at Symphony Hall this coming season, you won't have to show proof you've had a COVID vaccine or show a negative test result. You won't have to wear a mask either, although the BSO strongly encourages that you wear a KN95 or N95 mask. The symphony says air ventilation and filtration systems in the hall have been upgraded to meet or exceed standards. In the forecast to dry and sunny weekends on the way tonight, clear moonlit skies, lows about 63. Tomorrow, bright with a light breeze warming to about the mid-80s. Sunday, partial sunshine, highs about 83. It is now 74 degrees in the Boston area at 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. rwjf.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. King Charles III addressed the United Kingdom for the first time today following the death of his mother, Queen Elizabeth, yesterday. Britain's new monarch praised his mother's life of service and said he would continue to emulate it on the throne. In our sorrow, let us remember and draw strength from the light of her example. NPR's Frank Langford was listening to his first speech as monarch in London. Hey, Frank. Hey, Ori. So his first address to the nation in a job that he's waited a very, very long time for. What else did he say? Yeah, it was a mix, Ari, I think, of praising his mother, but also beginning to make the case for his own reign. He talked about the Queen's kind of personal touch and her global appeal. This is what he said. The affection, admiration, and respect she inspired became the hallmark of her reign. She combined these qualities with warmth, humor, and an unerring ability always to see the best in people. Did he give any sense of how he might be similar to or different from his mother as a monarch? Well, he was really focusing, Ari, on this connection between himself and his mother's legacy of service, which is one of the reasons people here were so fond of her. And it was also, as you'd remember from your time here, it was a way that she kind of changed the monarchy from its image uh, as Britain was losing its empire and relevance over the years. And Charles also made a nod to the fact that the United Kingdom is a much, much more diverse place than when his mother took the throne back in 1952. Whatever may be your background or beliefs... I shall endeavor to serve you with loyalty, respect, and love, as I have throughout my life. How'd it go over? Well, you know, I can't tell you because it's a big country and I don't know how (laughs) many people watched. But I decided to go to a pub nearby, and it was mostly people, early 30s professionals. And they watched, in part, I think, because the pub manager did put it on. And for them, they say it kind of fell flat. they had great respect for the queen, but Charles, he's now 73 years old. They don't feel he really has her touch. And the family, with the exception of Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, the wife of Prince Harry, of course, they've gone to live in the States. The family remains entirely white. So it's not really as rep- not that representative the way this country's been changing. And I was talking to a woman named Aisha Paw. She's an engineer of Indian descent. And, and this was her, this was the way she responded to it. We're a different age, we're a different gender, different skin colour. Like, I don't really have anything in common with him. Uh, Frank, as you know, I covered the UK for <laughs> years before you did, and all the way back then and before, there were these questions about Charles, whether he would resonate in a younger, more diverse Britain. That seems front and centre right now. 
Yeah, it really is. And I think that people have been talking about since long before even you were here, both of us. And one of the things people talked about today in the pub as they were watching and listening is the words seemed kind of stilted. They seemed written from a different era. You just heard some of them in terms of the delivery delivery, and didn't really speak to the concerns of ordinary Britons. I was talking to a woman named Sophie Fisher. She's a management consultant from New Zealand. And this was this was her response. I feel like the Queen has been like a critical component of unifying the whole nation. I can't see someone like Charles modernising it. Everything he said was completely written by someone that has no idea about the country. And i got to say, Ari, through no fault of his own, King Charles comes to the throne here at a, at a really difficult time for Britain. There's soaring energy prices, uh, obviously a war in Europe. Just basically got rid of a very divisive Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who was in many ways the antithesis of the Queen. And the country that, you know, six years after the Brexit vote continues to kind of keep searching for its role in the world. Some rough reviews there. Did you find any love for the new king? There was, you know, absolutely. Uh, There was a lovely scene this morning in front of Buckingham Palace where he greeted people. He shook their hands. He read the cards from all the flowers that were piled up at the gates. And he came off as quite warm and genuine. And I think you will see he's going to be traveling this week basically around the country trying to generate support, unify the country around his reign. But the overall impression right now is that Charles will have a hard act to follow in his mother. And Pierre's Frank Langfitt in London. Thank you. Good to talk, Ari. Borrowers here in the U.S. may still be feeling a sense of relief with the cancellation of some or all of their federal student loans, but about 8 million of them could be in for a nasty surprise. They may have to pay tax on all that debt relief depending on what state they live in. NPR education correspondent Corey Turner has been looking into all of this and joins us now. Hey, Corey. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so what kind of tax are we talking about here and where exactly will borrowers be affected? We are talking about state income tax in as many as seven states, North Carolina, Indiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and California. And to give you a sense of the potential cost here, um, this is hypothetical, but for folks who get $10,000 in student loan relief, it could mean an extra three, four, five hundred $500 in taxes. And for borrowers who qualify for more relief, the higher end of relief, it could mean closer to $1,000 in taxes, wow. which could be quite a hardship for some Yeah. Folks. Okay, so borrowers might be on the hook for state income tax, but not federal, right? Right. The federal government used to tax student debt relief, but last year Congress changed that. Through 2025, student debt relief is exempt from federal income tax. The challenge, though, Elsa, while most states base their income tax on federal rules, they don't have to. So in North Carolina and Indiana, for example, state leaders simply decided they want to keep taxing canceled student loans. The Other states on this list are a bit messier, though. They either don't follow federal tax policy or are really out of date and just don't have this tax exemption on their books yet. Okay, well, how likely is it that some of these states are going to scramble to change this? I think it's really likely, especially in a place like California. Uh, The leaders of the state legislature there tweeted uh, earlier today, quote, rest assured one way or another, California will not tax federal student debt relief. But to be clear, the the clock is ticking um, since states need to figure all of this out before people start filing their taxes. And, you know, in many states, legislatures, 
they're not going to be back in session until early next year. Um, Arkansas is a great example. The state's tax agency was really emphatic with me, um, just making clear just because current policy in Arkansas suggests debt relief is taxable doesn't mean it will be taxed. Huh? But they're really in a kind of limbo until the state legislature comes back in January and officially decides what do they want to do? You know, we could see something similar play out in many of the states on this list. Yeah. Okay, well, in states that do decide to tax student debt relief, what do borrowers need to know right now? Yeah, and this this is where um, this really kind of maddeningly confusing story gets maybe the most confusing. Uh, in the before times, when borrowers did have to pay federal income tax, they were sent this form. Okay, it was called a 1099C. <laughs> and not only did borrowers get it, but state tax authorities also got it. So basically everybody knew who had gotten debt relief and who was on the hook for income tax. But this time, because there won't be any federal income tax, the US government isn't sending out these 1099C forms, not to borrowers and not to state tax authorities. So I've been asking states, you know, without getting this federal form, how will you know who owes state income tax on their student debt relief? And the answer appears to be, they likely won't know. And that really puts the burden on borrowers to know they're on the hook for this state income tax and to proactively pay it. Yeah. But uh, to end on this, uh, Elsa, I talked to several tax experts who really warned me that lots of borrowers may not end up paying, not because they're trying to commit tax fraud, but because without that 1099C form, they simply may not know they need to do it. That is NPR's Corey Turner. Thank you, Corey. You're welcome, Elsa. You might want to make sure Alexa is out of earshot for this next story. You can say basically anything to a smart speaker. You can tell it to set an alarm. Alarm set for 8.30 a.m. tomorrow. You can ask it what the weather will be. You can expect a high of 77 degrees Fahrenheit. You can make it play music or turn on the lights or order groceries. Or you can even ask it something, you know, really, really silly. Alexa, play poop. That is BuzzFeed reporter Katie Natopoulos. Her five-year-old son recently discovered that if you tell the smart speaker to play poopy diaper, it will do just that. I got a poopy diaper, poopy diaper. I, I mean, I laughed hysterically. That song is called Poopy Diaper. It's really, like, serious musically. Natopolis found that there are actually a whole bunch of musicians making poop-themed songs. No way! <laughs> and although there's no way to prove it, she's pretty sure she knows who their most avid listeners are. Children yelling potty words at smart speakers. Everyone loves poop, whether they admit it or not. Luckily, young people are young enough to not be ashamed to admit it. Well, Matt Farley is one of those musicians who loves poop. He learned that making songs with nonsensical lyrics about bodily functions was a recipe for success. The more ridiculous the song, the more streams. The poop song was literally me on the piano singing the word poop for a minute and a half. Oh, poop, 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 poop. Metropolis says musicians making poop songs got a big boost in streams once more people started buying Amazon's Alexa smart speaker. 90% of their plays was coming from Amazon Music. 
that's the clear link that this is being driven by Alexa rather than someone going into Spotify and typing in the words poop. Musician Matt Farley says in at least one case, families even want to hear poop songs live. Like one couple who brought their three-year-old son to a recent show. Specifically because he's a fan of my song Poop Into a Wormhole. Everyone's having a grand old time singing poop, poop, poop into a wormhole. If you want to find more of Matt Farley's music, just ask Alexa. Hey Alexa, turn it up. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, ancient artifacts seized from the Med Museum in New York are headed back to the countries they were taken from. On Wall Street, the Dow rose about one and two-thirds percent, 377 points, to close at 32,152. S&P gained about one and a half percent to finish at 4,067. The Nasdaq picked up a little over 2 percent to close at 12,112. Details on Marketplace at 6.30. It's now 6.19. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases. Committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Coming to City Space Thursday, September 29th at 7 p.m., a performance from Alston-based band Lady Pills as part of the Sound On concert series. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. Might have an especially vivid sunset tonight. The wildfires burning out west are the reason. Smoke in the upper atmosphere has drifted our way, and the National Weather Service says it should create vivid reddish hues in the sky. Sunset is at 7.04. And not long after sunset, look to the east and see a full harvest moon. As a bonus, look to the left of the moon, you could see a big, bright Jupiter along the horizon. Look to the right, you get to see Saturn a little bit higher up. And lucky for us, the weather should cooperate. Clear skies in the mid-60s, partly to mostly sunny over the weekend, warming to the mid-80s. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. More than 70 stolen artifacts, some more than 2,000 years old, returned home to Italy and Egypt this week. They include a mummy portrait, a marble head depicting the goddess Athena, and an intricately painted drinking cup. The Manhattan District Attorney seized these objects as part of a string of search warrants targeting private collectors and New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. 
Erin Thompson has been tracking these investigations. She's a professor of art crime at the City University of New York and joins us now. Welcome. Lovely to be here. Lovely to have you. Okay, so let me just ask you, some of these objects, I mean, they were purchased decades ago. So what took so long to determine that they were stolen? Well, it didn't take so long to determine it. they were stolen. It took a while for the Metropolitan Museum to admit that, I think. Ah. Uh, a few decades ago, Italian authorities busted a, an antiquities smuggler who had a huge smuggling ring. And the thing is, he kept really good records, which is not such a great idea if you're a <laughs> worldwide criminal. Right. And including photographs of all of the antiquities that had passed through his hands that had been dug up from tombs, smuggled out of Italy, and then ended up in the hands of private collectors and museums around the world. So there are so many of these antiquities, it's taken a while for Italian authorities to match the photographs to objects in museums. And that is what happened here. Well, in the Met's defense, um, a museum spokesperson told us in a statement that the Metropolitan Museum of Art has been fully supportive of the Manhattan DA's investigations. Is it your view that the Met should have done more? No, I think the Met was fully cooperative, although I'm not sure how much you can pat yourself on the back for doing something you're legally obligated to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. But what I think needs to happen is the right now the, the museums are just waiting for the authorities to approach them and say there's a problem with this particular item. But the museums have all of this information about items in their collection. Why aren't they the ones digging into that information and saying, oh, there's other red flags that mm. should be attended to. We're not just going to wait for authorities. Well, what would the incentive be for them to do that? I mean, if prosecutors had never gotten involved in these specific cases, is there any real incentive for museums to independently investigate the patronage of objects that are currently in their collection? Sadly, no. And that's why I think public attention is so important. Right now, museums get to have this good reputation as some place that's preserving art without any question. And it's only when we as the public ask, hey, how exactly did you get those things that they start to think, oh, we better reconsider our ethics? Well, not to justify theft, but, you know, we have heard arguments from museums in the past that even if certain objects were stolen in their collections, museums could at least preserve those objects for public appreciation and academic study. What do you say to that argument? I have two small kids, and when my youngest steals a cookie from her older brother and runs around the house as he's chasing her, shouting, I sharing, I sharing. <laughs> that argument doesn't fly. Uh-huh. Uh, it's good to share heritage, but you can't justify violent theft by saying, well, now I'm sharing. It's great to share if everybody agrees. And I hope that's what we'll see in museums in the future. But to go a step further, how would you ethically source a collection? One that still manages to educate and enrich the public's cultural understanding. Well, say you wanted to go to a museum to learn about the culture of Nepal. Right now, most Western collections have sacred artworks that were stolen from active worship in shrines and monasteries in Nepal. That seems kind of unethical, creepy, not great. What if instead those galleries were filled with contemporary art, uh, art made by people who are continuing these traditions of sculpture and wood carving, uh, videos of historical artwork installed in shrines. So it looks like more contemporary art. It looks like more negotiations 
Uh, it doesn't look like buying something from an auction or a dealer with absolutely no idea of how it got out of its country of origin. Aaron Thompson, professor of art crime at the City University of New York. Thank you very much. Thank you. Canada's official opposition, the Conservative Party, will announce the results of elections for a new party leader tomorrow. And the heavily favored candidate is a member of parliament who has drawn comparisons to former U.S. President Donald Trump. Emma Jacobs reports from Montreal. Earlier this summer, parliamentarian Pierre Polyev walked the streets of Ottawa at the head of a flag-waving procession. Beside him was James Topp, an army reservist walking cross-country to protest COVID-19 restrictions and vaccine mandates. I think that he is uh, advocating freedom of choice. People should have the freedom to make their own decisions uh, with their own bodies. Now, Polyev appears poised to become the head of Canada's Conservative Party, the main opponent to the Liberal Party led by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The election of the Conservatives' new leader, conducted by mail-in ballot, concludes Saturday. Polyev would replace former leader Aaron O'Toole, who tried to keep his party to the political center. O'Toole stepped down in February during demonstrations in Ottawa, which supporters called the Freedom Convoy and opponents called an occupation of the nation's capital. Polyev announced his own candidacy days later, saying he would fight to make Canadians, quote, the freest people on earth. Now, the people with power, the media, interest groups, corporate giants, government authorities, will fight tooth and nail to keep on top. So it won't be easy. Polyev has become known for his use of social media to communicate his populist message directly with voters. Pierre Polyev is a, is a conservative ideologue. Conservative strategist Melanie Paradis says while Polyev often gets compared to former President Donald Trump, she thinks that's overblown. Someone like Trump is more of a demagogue, and he's turned the GOP into a, a cult of personality, and that is not what's happening in Canada right now. But she says, like Trump, Polyev has managed to engage people frustrated with the current government who may not have voted in the past. The first time they've ever been to a political rally in their lives was to go see Pierre Polyev. And some observers, including pollster and analyst Shachi Curl of the Angus Reid Institute, think he could have a path to becoming prime minister in a future election. Polyev actually doesn't need to go mainstream. He can hold the entirety of his conservative base as it exists today. And if he can pick up people even further to the right, and if they show up to vote for him, there is a path where he picks up a majority government. For now, Curl says, Polyev's likely victory in this leadership race would still signal a big change and rightward shift for Canada's Conservative Party. For NPR News, I'm Emma Jacobs in Montreal.
This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Dry and sunny weekend is on the way. Tonight, clear skies, lows about 63. Tomorrow, bright with a light breeze, warming to the mid-80s. Sunday, partial sunshine, highs about 83. We might have an especially vivid sunset tonight. The wildfire is burning out west, or the reason. Smoke in the upper atmosphere has drifted our way, and the National Weather Service says it should create vivid reddish hues in the sky. Sunset is at 704. It's now 6.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Southern New Hampshire University, offering over 100 master's degrees online and on campus. Next term starts soon. snhu.edu. Cityside Subaru in Belmont with the all-new 2022 Subaru Outback Wilderness Edition. It's summer of love at citysidesubaru.com. And CB Team in Lexington, using exposure therapy to help all ages learn to overcome OCD and anxiety disorders. More at cbteam.org.